Welcome to the Some Days Here podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Mabuni. So glad you're here. Some Days Here is a podcast for AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islander leaders. In each episode, we discuss how we navigate living in both Eastern and Western worlds and how the unique blend of our experiences influences our faith, our life, and our leadership. Yep. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Someday is Here, Season 4. And I'm thrilled to have back two previous guests who have also been on previous seasons of Someday is Here. But we are here, the three of us, to talk about a book that we have all been contributors to, Voices of Lament. Uh, if those of you who are familiar with these guests um, will know all about them uh, because of the previous seasons. But for those of you who are not, I am here with Kathy Kong, who is, an, uh, who is a Korean-American writer, speaker, and yoga teacher. She lives in the north suburbs of Chicago, is the author of Raise Your Voice, Why We Stay Silent and How to Speak Up. And she serves on the board of Christians for Social Action. Um, she was previously on season uh, episode four of season one. She was one of my number one, like I really want to talk to this woman um, guests. So I'm thrilled to have Kathy here. And I also have Grace P. Cho. She is a Korean American writer, poet, speaker, and she is the senior, a senior acquisitions editor for Ravel. Um, a new position she has just taken on recently. She creates space for people to be known, nurtured, and challenged through her work and desire to elevate women of color's voices in the publishing industry. And she does that so well. Uh, both of these women are women I consider friends. And I also am, am so inspired by their writing. Uh, with Grace, uh, there is not a single word uh, that is not purposefully placed. She's not per a person to take words and just fill in. She is a very intentional writer. And Kathy has a background in journalism. And when she writes, it's just, there's just such a, a an excellence to her writing as well and such clarity. So I'm thrilled to have both of you on. Welcome to the podcast. We're so glad to be here. Uh, for those who are listening, that was Grace. And then Kathy, do you want to say a quick hello? Sure. Hello. It's really great to be here with you. I mean, I wish the listeners could just see us because we're just like, we're so happy to see each other. <laughs> we are so happy to see each other and we love Zoom, but in person is always the best. So thank you so much for being here. I would love for the two of you to maybe spend just a few minutes just sharing um, just a bit of your ethnic journey and how you found yourself to be, I know that's a large, I mean, that's a huge question, but I'll have Grace go ahead and start first with just a little about your ethnic journey and, um, and just a little bit about your, your life, your current life. Sure. Um, I often say that I am only coming into my Koreanness um, in the last decade. So, uh, I grew up overseas as a missionary's kid and a pastor's kid. So lots of third culture, um, not quite belonging, both in my family, but also culturally wherever I lived. And um, when I came back to the States in high school is when I really began to despise uh, my Koreanness. And it took a long time for me to see that 
not only was this the way that God intended to make me, but that it was good. And um, so I'm really trying to embrace who I am as a Korean American woman. And what does that mean? Um, I think for those of us who are children of immigrants, how we define our identity as, you know, Korean Americans or Chinese Americans, it, it depends on where you are and how you're choosing to define that. So every journey is different and um, I'm trying to hold whatever goodness that looks like for me um, in my place. I live in Southern California where there are a lot of Asian Americans and Korean Americans. And so how do I define that for me, my family, my kids? Um, and I'm still learning. I'm learning to, um, like right now, Kathy is wearing a hanbok and I love that. I think I used to be embarrassed and I, there were just so many things I, I didn't like and wanted to get away from and become quote unquote Americanized. Um, and now I'm recognizing that there's so much beauty and depth to my culture and my history. And um, so I'm learning to embrace that. So that's a little bit about my journey. That's great. How about you, Kathy? I am not in Southern California. <laughs> I wish I, you were. Um, I know, I know. I am in the Chicago suburbs and I've lived in this area since I was eight months old. So I immigrated with my parents when I was eight months and carried a green card until maybe about 15 years ago when I became a U.S. citizen. Uh, so my understanding of being Korean has always been a core part of my identity. It was always part of the story my parents told me about who I am, um, but how that was expressed and um, appreciated or loved has waxed and waned and changed over the years, really depending on um, situation and circumstances. So I really didn't think anything of my ethnic cultural background until we moved out of the Chicago city proper into the suburbs when I was in second grade. And that was my first awakening into like, why are there so many white people? <laughs> <laughs> it just was a different experience having first started school in Chicago and then moving to the suburbs. And we did not live in an area where there was much racial diversity. So um, socioeconomically, looking back, there was that diversity, definitely, but otherwise not as much as what I had grown accustomed to. Um, and, you know, I'm now in my 50s and the embracing and the actual physical wearing of my cultural identity continues to shift and change with uh, the availability of that in the world around me, the acceptability, you know, mm. K-pop, K-drama, all that kind of stuff, but also in wrestling with what does it mean to be a Korean American in the Asian American space, in the woman of color space, in the POC space, is that those labels um, can be very powerful, but also very limited. Mm. Oh, that's so, so true. And I love that for both of you, I 
I glean so much listening because when there's language, there's validation of the experience. And so even if it's not exactly the same, it's learning to navigate through having the experiences validated and terminology to be able to begin to understand, okay, there is something really beautiful about our Asian American or AAPI community uh, there's solidarity in that, and it was formed for the purpose of solidarity. Um, and yet we miss so often uh, these other communities that are less represented. So East Asian is often so dominant, and our South Asian, Southeast Asian voices, Pacific Islander voices are not often heard. And I appreciate both of you being so cognizant of that, because I see that in your writing and in your speaking that you are uh, very aware to include. And um, so I'm really appreciative of that. So thanks for being examples to me. And uh, yeah, I've just loved, I've loved learning with you and from you. So let's talk a little bit about this book that we are all a part of, Voices of Lament. It is Reflections on Brokenness and Hope in a World Longing for justice. And our mutual friend, Natasha Robinson, uh, was the editor of this incredible book. And uh, she brought together, I believe it's 29 women of color to contribute to uh, a, a book that um, really is a reflection on Psalm 37. Uh, and each of us took different parts and contributed. So I would love for each of you to share what you contributed and why you decided to take part in this this writing project. Well, I've known Natasha, and so I felt like I couldn't say no. <laughs> so <laughs> as a friend, <laughs> right? Like, right, as a friend, when a friend asks you, can you, like, I would love for you to be a part of X, I tend to, and I think we as women, women of color, particularly when we see something, we, we want to elevate that and we want the other person, we want our sister to win. So when she had this request, I was like, oh yeah, sure. And in retrospect, and I've told Natasha this, I didn't know what I was saying yes to, <laughs> you know, because a yeah. lot of, a lot of the compilation type books, you like submit your thing and then that's it. Um, but what she tried to do and did was create a community. And, you know, I, I did not show up for very many of the Zoom calls, but she had Zoom calls scheduled regularly for everyone. She had mm -hmm. a retreat for authors that I couldn't go to. Um, she's really tried to bring our voices, not just together physically on paper for this book, but really to have and create a space for us to learn from one another in real life. Like as mm. we are doing the writing or struggling through or checking in. And I told her the other day, I was like, you were, I mean, she was trying to coordinate a bunch of cats running around and you're like, <laughs> Yes. And extroverted cats, even though we're not all extroverted, was like, oh, this, oh, what, what? Um, but that's why I said yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, that's I love that's that. Okay. I love you, that Chris? friendship. Friendship preceded the yes and mm. the connection. Um, I, I think it just goes to show also, I hear of so many uh, women of color saying this where we are communal by nature, not only culturally, but just that's just how we think. That's how we operate. Mm -hmm. And so it wouldn't have maybe even been a second thought 
um, like what you said, you didn't even know what this project was going to be about, right. but you already said yes. Right. <laughs> and I, and I just love that. And, um, and for me, I, I similarly, I only knew Natasha. Um, I don't know her as I didn't know her then as well as I know her now, but um, just a project to be with other women of color was such a draw to me. I have not been in, I, I've, I had never been in a space like that um, until that point. And particularly because this project started during the pandemic to find a space where it felt um, I could come and be known and be seen without a lot of explanation. Mm -hmm. It was such a gift. And I was there for um, a lot of the meetings and it really was a place of um, both solidarity, but, but there, it, there was just like a softness to be as someone who has faith um, in God and someone who was losing hope mm. in people. And, mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I've told her this many times of how I felt like my faith was um, bolstered because of her faith and her belief in this project. And, um, and so lamenting together really for me became, um, and I think it's the heart of this book, but it was really the heart of the community that we built mm -hmm. together um, over Zoom, you know, over the pandemic. And so I'm glad I said yes. I also didn't know what it would look like to be part of this project, but just just the fact that I had not seen this, it was intriguing enough. And um, it's like when you don't know that you're hungry for something, Mm -hmm. And then you smell it and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm actually, I actually am so hungry. Um, so it was a, a little bit of that and being so filled by our mm -hmm. times. Yeah, I'm similar to you both as well. I had met Natasha back, um, gosh, in the early, early 2000s or so, 2000, maybe eight, nine, 10 or something. We were part of the Synergy Conference. Uh, Carolyn Custis James had put on and we had met attending the Synergy Conference. Um, and shout out to Carolyn Kestis James. She was the first person I read who wrote about the Azer Warrior and um, just the idea in in uh, Genesis 2.18 where it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And the helper is such a strong Hebrew word. The, the word's used 21 times in the Old Testament and 16 of, the time, of those times is in relation to God as a strong helper and often in the context of military battle. So Azer warrior is what the Hebrew word helper is Azer. And I, I think of her as an Azer and I think of the women who contributed to this book as Azer warriors. And so I wore my necklace, my Azer necklace in honor of today as well, um, because I think that we, in our in so many of our communities of color, women are often viewed as helper in a weak form. Like we're the ones that, you know, pour the tea or clean up or we're in the kitchen cooking or, or as my husband's grandmother, Okinawan grandmother, when she would fix a meal, she literally sat to the side and everyone else ate. And even when it was just me and Darren, you know, that was what she was accustomed to. She would move from the front seat of the car and move to the back seat of the car whenever, you know, uh, one of her grandsons was there. It was just this understood 
sense of helper meant less and lower. Um, and I think that there's a strength that comes with our um, all being, all sharing quite vulnerably our stories. But there's this strength that is this through line to me, um, strength in the Lord and strength in community and drawing strength from those who've gone before us and drawing right. strength from one another and all of us with our eyes set to help make it better for the coming generation. And so what I mm -hmm. loved about the vision of this book was how it was intergenerational, how it was international. It wasn't just North American Christian women writers, but it was women from other parts of the world. And that picture to me of recognizing that God is not an American, um, Jesus wasn't a white man, <laughs> you know, and Jesus didn't even speak English what? all the days he walked the <laughs> earth. Oh my goodness, how amazing, you know? So um, the original Bible is in Hebrew, so there's that. <laughs> so, you know, or yeah. not the Bible Bible, but you know, the Torah and everything. You guys know what I'm talking about. Anyway, well, I would love to hear about your writing process. Like, how did you decide to write what you did? Um, what was the inspiration? What were some? What was the process for you? Oh gosh, I you know I'm trying to remember what that process was like because honestly, Grace, you mentioned we this this came together during uh, the pandemic, and so I don't know about the rest of you, but the last couple of years are just kind of a fog. Um, mm -hmm. And um, and I know for me, I was just in a really hard place managing my depression and anxiety. Um, and and so the writing process reflected that it felt mm. like i was trying to dig and unearth something that i was afraid to disturb mm. because i didn't know what might happen when mm. the words started to come out um or the flip side is that the words would come out but i wouldn't feel anything which was the numbness of my depression um and then because you know, we're, we're talking about lament and hope, but also lament. It just felt um, hard to uh, go there for me. And so I, my process was uh, procrastinate. <laughs> As all writers do. Right. It, it was not this beautiful, like I sat and every day was like, oh, I'll just get, you know, a couple more words down. It really wasn't that. It was very much like, let's see how far we can push this deadline, Natasha. So sorry. Um, it's like uh, final it, week where, you know, everything's <laughs> all clean all around you. It's like, I'm supposed right. to be doing this, but boy, I think I've seen some of your, your Twitter oh, tweets. Yeah. Like, you know, oh, yeah, my the bookshelf is organized, you know. Oh, yeah, my stove the pencils. is cleaned. <laughs> the pencils are lined up. I've like cleaned the, the leaves of my Monstera mm -hmm. plant. Like that's, that's when it gets really bad. Um but you know the the that was the process was just like mm. sitting down and just feeling like I don't know if I want to allow myself to get angry and allow mm. myself to get into this psalm and really feel that and I think that's part of the invitation for the readers as much as it was for us as authors. Yeah. Did you know Scout Bassett is an elite sprinter, triathlete, paraplegian and UCLA graduate. Who is she? 
Scout became the fastest American of her classification ever to run the 100-meter dash for the U.S. And she teamed with American Girl to have a doll created after her. Scout lost her leg in a chemical fire as a baby in China. As a seven-year-old, she was adopted from a Chinese orphanage by an American family. She grew up in a predominantly white town in Michigan and had no friends or role models who looked like her or had a disability like hers. However, her most painful life experience occurred during the pandemic when Scout faced overt racism at a local grocery store. She used that event to not only fuel her athletic goals, but also to become a voice and role model for other Asian Americans. In her words, quote, representation really does matter. We cannot aspire to the things that we want to be or that we don't even know we might want to be until we see someone else doing it, end quote. And that's this week's Did You Know? For for me, you know, the I think the everything comes in pictures for me in my head. Um, and the first uh, when she had read uh, Jeremiah about the wailing women, mm-hmm. the thought that came to mind was, and I don't know if I've seen it in a Korean drama. I don't even I didn't really grow up watching Korean dramas, but the visual was of the funeral procession from like in a, you know, long time ago or countryside rural area where they're walking in white and they're proceeding down and carrying um, the deceased. And so that was kind of the visual and and those who are mourners in the front and, and singing and, and really that wailing. And I can imagine, I can hear it in my head of the deep anguish of women crying out and um, and how I used to think when, you know, why would you hire mourners? Like in, I, 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 like I didn't understand why you would need that when you're already sad. Um, but recognizing how sometimes, um, and now that we, you know, both my husband's grandparents passed away during, um, during the writing of this book and, and having gone through that process so intimately um, during the pandemic, though they didn't die of COVID, it was helpful to remember that sometimes we need someone going ahead of us to um, to do the wailing and to do the crying so that those of us who are processing or we don't even know how to process, we can do the same thing. So. Mm-hmm. I think re- remembering that imagery and then um, and then having done that very thing um, to walk the family. Um, I had done the burial service for both grandma and grandpa when they passed. And so it was really that walking to the end, right? Saying goodbye and walking them to the door. Um, so that was the imagery that I was inspired by and um and this poem, I, I'm a new poet, and this poem really came from that place of, I don't know how to get these things out. I don't know how to get the lament out. Um, so I'm calling out to my harmony to, um, to help me. And so I'll share more about the poem, and I'll share the poem um, later on, but that's 
that was the imagery that came to mind and um and having physically embodied that mm -hmm. through the pandemic through the writing of this book wow what an offering <clears throat> i'm getting a little choked up and you haven't even read the poem yet but to hear the backstory really um it just it sets everything and it's it is i think it's a time I think looking back now, and as I'm starting to slowly read through the book now, I'm realizing, boy, we were all kind of writing out of some places, you know, some real places. And I appreciate you, Kathy, just sharing about depression. And I think that, you know, we in the AAPI community, I would love nothing more than for us to normalize being able to talk about mental health and to be able to talk about just, you know, these are our realities. And when we experience trauma, when our parents experience trauma, that there's this, there is uh, lingering effects of it. And when we begin to bring those things into the light, it kind of gives permission to um, be able to get help. And it, in the same way, I think of Grace, as you're talking about the people who've gone before, it gives us permission to grieve, you know, and it's, it just kind of, unleashes the floodgates a little bit more. And I think sometimes um, the medium of words is such a powerful way to usher people in to a very holy and sacred space. And that's mm -hmm. what a lot of the writing um, is that I notice. My, my chapter was on generosity, on generous like our God. And I kind of brought up this idea of how as uh, people of color, we often are asked to contribute our stories and our pain for the sake of um, educating uh, mostly mm -hmm. majority culture. And uh, sometimes uh, when that's not reciprocated and we're just kind of left out there, it can become really not only uh, vulnerable, it can also be damaging at times. And so mm -hmm. I have counseled and mentored younger leaders to say, you know, it's perfectly okay to say no. And that kind of goes against our culture of, you know, honoring hierarchy and people older than us, when they are asking us something, we just feel compelled to put ourselves out there, take one for the team. Um, right. And, you know, in communities of color, you know, at the Chinese banquet, you sit down and the auntie next to you is always pulling out the big pieces of shrimp and, you know, the best parts of the duck and sticking it on your plate. And everyone's kind of feeding everyone else and pouring tea for everyone else. And everyone leaves the banquet completely full. Um, but mm -hmm. when we have an individualistic approach to a meal where everyone gets their own individual meal at the Cheesecake Factory, <laughs> you know, um, we if we have this idea that we share, we may leave mm -hmm. the meal hungry. And that was kind of this right. burrito situation that I write about in, in my chapter. Um, and so there's just a lot of, you know, obviously food imagery to, mm -hmm. you know, to be said. But again, as communities of color, that there is this generosity and that is like just infused into our DNA that I find so beautiful um, that like when I go out with my girlfriends, all of us Asian, we go to an Italian restaurant and like six of us order six different meal so we can taste everything and we literally yes, so you can share <laughs> yes so we just asked the server for an extra plate and we are just like splitting up the ravioli and we're trying all the different things and we have the best meal ever because we all got to share so it's just this family style that i love about our communities and and how we how we eat and even how we lead and so mm -hmm. um 
recognizing that, naming it, and then being able to help the younger generation understand that there's, there is, when we do share these stories, that they are a gift. And when we see it as such, then there's an understanding that I am gifting this group, this community with mm -hmm. my story, and it's, my hands are open to offer it, but it's not out of a place of like, I'm expecting someone else necessarily to, to bring, put chicken on my plate, if that makes sense. So it's that, yeah. that, that back and forth. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting too. I think um, this book couldn't have been written by a single author, mm -hmm. right? The wholeness and fullness. I have not finished it. It's, uh, it's a book I cannot just sit down and like, rush through. Mm. Um, it's just too much. It's too much. But, you know, you look at the the diversity of the author's um, social location, ethnic racial identity, generation, experience, even experience in the writing world, in the Christian writing world. Um, there's no way a single author could have written this book. And yet, I think the question in my mind, too, and I love that, Grace, you're, you are now a senior acquisitions editor in that space that... Um, you know, the three of us have often talked about and we've been right. a part of in different ways is that uh, what does this open up in terms of opportunities, but That's also right. open up in terms of just vision mm -hmm. for other women of color to see ways in which we can work together to elevate one another's voices and stories in a way that isn't traditional publishing single author for a single book, but what does a compilation look like? And, and again, this one is just so unique because it's all women of color mm -hmm. and some are authors that people have never heard of. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and so new to an audience. So um, a lot to think about, even as I, even as I engage with the book as a reader. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it all, it goes to show the intentionality of Natasha's leadership and mm -hmm. her, her vision for us mm -hmm. um, as a group and her vision, like what you were saying, beyond even this book for the publishing industry to be creative, to mm -hmm. imagine outside of what they've done already. And then for other women of color writers to imagine themselves in these rooms in, in, in book form even. Mm -hmm. um, so I love that. And I think I was really inspired by that. And I, I really hope that people uh, can have their minds blown, not just from the content of this book, but how it, how it will impact beyond just readership, but the industry itself. And yeah. 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 So, so good. Well, my understanding, Grace, is that you are doing the audiobook. Is that correct? Yes, I am. I am. I'll be. It is an honor and it is a um, sober responsibility is how I'm seeing it to voice. I, I think it's always going to be tricky when there are so many uh, women whose voices have been marginalized or um been silenced and so to be the one to voice the book um i recognize that it's not uh it's not our highest hopes right 
Mm. It would be great if we could all voice our own pieces. Um, so I think that there's that reality. And also it's an honor to do it um, on behalf of us. <laughs> I'm so glad. I mean, honestly, of all the voices, I'm glad it's yours, Grace, because you have a a calm to your voice. You're easy to listen to, but you also have strength in your voice. And I think it's the best combination for the content. So I'm thrilled when I heard that it was you. Thank I was you. like, yes, so good. <laughs> so good. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of, um, you know, the content and sharing, I would love I mean, Kathy and I would love to hear you share your poem. You could have it be like a practice for the, you know, the audiobook. Sure. Tell us about the sure. poem. Tell us a little bit about the backstory, and then yeah. I'd love for you to share it. Well, I want to highlight the um, the drawing that was done. There are several drawings in the book um, as a response to uh, some of the liturgies and essays and poems that were written and mine was a in the in the picture you can see it's um an elderly person's hands holding um someone else's hand and they're doing um what in my conglish is sontain, which is where you uh prick your thumb or um, your finger in order to release your indigestion um, and I remember my grandmother doing this to herself and how much she wanted to do it for us and how afraid I was of the needle. I just, it's a scary thought to be pricked so that you would bleed. <laughs> um, and <laughs> I didn't like it. I didn't. But that image came to mind as I was trying to process all the things that were happening um, across the nation globally mm. Uh, during the pandemic and and also that there weren't words to say. So these are the words that came from that place with that imagery in mind. The title is called Release in Me a Song of Lament. My grandma used to wrap her thumb tight with a thread, gathering the blood at the top. With thumb bent over, she'd take a needle and prick the skin right beneath her nail to ease the unmoving pain stuck between her gut and chest. Dark blood would trickle out and she'd wipe it away, red drops smeared on white. With each squeeze, the knots would untangle, releasing the tension within. Each prick pushed the dark blood out until it turned brighter, a sign that she'd done what was needed. Unthreading her thumb, the color would return, life flowing freely again. When I was young and my stomach would be tied up in knots, my grandmother would try to prick my thumb to help me in love, but I could only see the pointed tip of the needle and too afraid of the prick, I was willing to hold onto my pain. White in the face, I'd protest her efforts and turn away from the relief promised. She'd give up because it was no use forcing someone to receive the help they so desperately needed when they couldn't see their own desperation. And now rage and grief twist like thick rope inside me tangled with no sense of beginning or end. Tears are caged by the numbness I feel, the violence, the helplessness, the hopelessness I feel. Cursing overtakes my language, but I can't seem to put to sound the scream stuck within me. Someone help me release this overwhelming pain before it overcomes me. Someone show me 
how to guide this anger before it hardens my empathy, my vision for what could be. I want to resist hope until the wicked perish, until justice is given. But if I'm honest, I'm desperate for a reason to keep going toward a future that looks nothing like it is now. I'm searching for a way forward. So I look back to my history and remember my people who held on through oppression and forced assimilation, the women of my heritage who beat their chest, pounding out their lament through minor notes of song and prayer. I call out, I'm ready, Haimani. Come prick my heart. Wrap me with your thread of resilience. I'm bent low, no longer afraid of the needle, more afraid of becoming like stone. Come prick me and make me tender again. Let the cynicism flow out of me. Show me how to wail and whimper, weep and scream the anguish through gruddle cries. Teach me the rhythm of pounding my chest and loosen my lips to sing the notes of lament. She takes the needle and pricks my soul. The anger and grief flow mingle down. She wipes my tears, smooths my hair, and says, shh, one day, one day there will be peace. We sing in harmony our song of lament, and the sounds become words of hopeful praise. Hallelujah, a day will come. A day will come. Hallelujah. Thank you. Yeah. I, I loved that I got to see the same pricking happening for my daughter. I posted about this, that she had indigestion and she was white in the face. And my in-laws, whom we live with, they pricked her finger and immediately, immediately she felt better. And wow. it was amazing to see both the miracle of you know, Eastern medicinal, you know, ways. Mm -hmm. And to see that that's exactly what happened for me through the community that was created um, from this book is that other people going first, other people telling their stories, other people crying, other women sharing and their anguish and their their pains allowed me to release what was inside me um, so that we can lament together. And there was the healing. I mean, it was amazing to see my daughter just back to her normal self, right? Right after being pricked and, um, and how she was choosing that. Mm -hmm. Whereas I was afraid when I was little and she was choosing that in order to be healed and and that was a very powerful imagery to read i mean to see after i had written this poem you know two years ago or so wow wow and it's such a beautiful kind of generational story mm -hmm. and tracks also the pain i think for all of us as women of color whether it's through enslavement migration um, this back and forth of what is uh, what is normal, what is right, how do you go about healing? What does that look like? Mm -hmm. And for listeners who are not whose only experience of Korean culture is K drama and K pop, <laughs> there is this you know a complete lack of understanding. We're not 
um, I mean, we are beautiful people, but we're loud people. Yeah. We have, we are very expressive and, and so many of those traditions, the music, the dance, the, the funeral procession are also linked with uh, practices that were no were not allowed right in mm-hmm. in Christian white circles mm-hmm. that um, and and so that that sense of like the procession of people wearing white and and how white means different things in different mm-hmm. cultural contexts mm-hmm. right and so for me the idea of wearing white at a wedding was really disarming because white was so associated with funerals to mm-hmm. me it still is in a lot of ways um but that sense of that like the loud guttural chest thumping like i i i have heard that i've been around that and and i think i have done that and not recognized myself in that and so that image of your daughter saying yes mm-hmm right away knowing and fully trusting that that process would bring release and healing is so powerful and beautiful yeah there's good pain and bad pain like Mm -hmm. if we hold on to it we will be in pain and Mm -hmm. being able to be willing to be under something that will actually relieve the pain is Mm -hmm. a good pain it's like getting a crown for your tooth you know, it's like, <laughs> it's just going to be painful regardless, but one is going to result in health and the other is going to result in further, you know, further complications. Mm-hmm. And so I do think about how God has set set up a way for us to grieve well in order to make space to be able yeah. to extract yeah. the things that are good and Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so for all the things that have been so wrong and so harmful and bad, there's there's the grieving, and then there's also the redemption piece. I think that comes in, but it it there's a there's a process, and um, yeah. I love that how how this this book, your poem, it kind of ushers us into that space of like we have to look at our history. We can't turn away and pretend it didn't mm-hmm. happen that's going to result in further decay and destruction. It's bad pain Mm -hmm. to just pretend Mm -hmm. nothing ever happened. But if we look at it square, that there actually can be um, a reckoning and hopefully a healing, possibly reparations. You know, it's just, it's a part Mm -hmm. of this way toward a healthy future for, for all involved. So, yeah. I think I also that. the idea of lament and hope together. Mm-hmm. I like that it's in the title of our book, but mm-hmm. also that when it almost felt foolish, it does always feel foolish to hope in the face of tragedy, in the face of grief. It feels like a a slap in the face to say like, hope in the Lord or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was it was my my struggle with what does that mean, God? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to lament and hope? And what are we even looking forward to mm-hmm. if one day it'll be made right? But what about right now? And how do we, you know? So it, in that wrestling, it was I, that idea of you know sh- one day, one day, you know, one mm-hmm. day, 
it will be made right one day, you know? And so we can keep going toward healing, toward hope, um, and that it's not foolish, mm. but that there we have a God who sees and cares. And one day, like, I, I think that that idea of looking forward and knowing that it's not just all going to hell mm-hmm. was uh, uh, that I needed that. I needed someone to shush and like, you know, comfort mm-hmm. my soul and say, this is not for nothing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the lamenting that ha- we get to hope or, or lamenting is an act of hope mm-hmm. because through it, we are grieving. We're going through the process of grief and, mm-hmm. and that allows us to be human and 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 be tender to hope Mm. yeah such a great perspective and truth so thank you Woo! well friends we've kind of gone everywhere (laughs) um i would love for listeners to know how they can um, continue to connect with you and learn from you so please share um maybe anywhere that they can find you and if there's any projects they're currently working on. Um, uh, listeners can find me on m- primarily Instagram and Twitter. My handle there on um, both spaces is the same at Ms. Kathy Kong, M.S. Kathy Kong. And um, by the time this airs, hopefully we will have a title. I'm uh, just turned in the first uh, uh attempt at a book at another book with a co-author um and friend matt michelotis so we don't we don't actually have a title yet so we'll just call it the book the book kathy and matt are working on and kathy has a very clean stove right now just yeah just for the record (laughs) but we're excited we will be promoting all those things and of course everything will be connected in the show notes as well but how about you grace um, you can find me at gracepicho.com and I am at gracepicho on all social media platforms. That is wonderful. Yeah. I love it. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast again. So fun to have you. Yes. And I'm sure this is not the last time too. So thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Someday is here is a production of Ivy media podcast. It's produced and edited by Angie Elkins. Show notes and graphics are by Nikki Ogden. And the original music is by Joseph Patrick with Passion Net Productions. I'm your host, Vivian Mabuni. To learn more about the Someday's Here community, check us out on the socials at Someday's Here Podcast or at Viv Mabuni on Instagram. <laughs>